Welcome to episode number 273. In today's episode, I'm going to be sharing with you the steps to ensure that you're harvesting your herbs at the correct time, as well as what you need to do when storing them to ensure you have the highest medicinal properties in the herb and you're not releasing it until the time of use. But first, let me introduce you to the podcast. I'm your host, Melissa K. Norris, a fifth generation homesteader who got back to her roots of using simple modern homesteading for a healthier and more self-sufficient life after a cancer scare in my late 20s. This is the place for you, my friend, if you sometimes wondered if you weren't born a hundred years too late. If you've always thought that you and Laura Ingalls would be best friends, and if you think that every home and kitchen would be better if they were filled with mason jars and cast iron, and those things were used daily with homegrown and homemade food. If that is you, then welcome home and welcome to this amazing community of modern pioneers. I feel like in almost every episode or everything in our life right now, we are doing more than ever in order to be be prepared for this fall and winter. And if you listened to the previous episodes, then you'll know the steps that we are taking that I shared in episode number 271 to make sure that we're prepared for any type of extended pandemic stuff. Who knows what's going to come down the pike? Hopefully nothing. But if anything, 2020 has shown us that <laughs> there's lots of things that can be thrown at us. So we're working to make sure that we're ready with that. And then I shared in last week's episode, number 272, my preserving tips and techniques for making sure all of the harvest is preserved for the fall and winter. And that brings me to the next step, which is preserving our herbs as well as stocking our natural medicine cabinet. And if you want to learn more about using herbs effectively, especially during the cold and flu season, you want to make sure that you snag a seat in my absolutely free class. I'm doing a live training and you can go to melissaknorris.com forward slash herb class melissaknorris.com forward slash herb class and it will be on Thursday September 24th I'm going to be doing a live one hour class totally free sharing five tips to using your herbs effectively the best ones for during cold and flu season why safety with herbs matter and how to know where to start so you're going to want to make sure that you sign up for that it's going to be a great free training melissaknorris.com forward slash herb class. I hope that you join me there. But back to today's topic at hand. So every year, I would say for the past seven years, I have been increasing the amount of herbs that we're able to grow at home, as well as our natural medicine cabinet. It was going on 11 years ago that I healed from taking stomach medications to control acid. I had severe stomach acid, GERD, reflux, 
as well as stomach ulcers. And I had my stomach and upper esophagus actually biopsied for cancer, which came back negative. Hallelujah. But I did show erosion and cellular change beginning. And I had to get off the medications. I had been on them at the max dose for way too long. And the only way that I was able to do that and to find healing was by the foods that I ate. Now, you can catch that episode. I have a three-part series because people naturally want to know how I did that. So I walk you through the steps that I did and took. But when I realized how much of an impact just changing the foods that I ate had on my health, I naturally wondered what would happen if I started using herbs instead of turning to pharmaceuticals. And so my research and curiosity was piqued and I began down the road of using herbs and natural medicine and every year have expanded what we're using and how I'm using it with myself and with my family and also what we're growing. As a gardener and a homesteader, no big surprise, being able to raise my own medicine and grow it and then harvest it has been amazing. Now, there is still quite a few herbs and spices that just won't grow in our climate or I just haven't gotten in yet. But we did a large expansion this year and are growing a lot more herbs, which means I have a much bigger harvest of herbs that need to be intended to, which is what I want to talk to you about today. Now, when you are harvesting your herbs, the plants, parts that are used, now this is definitely depending upon the herb, and we're going to talk about both of them. But first up, most people are familiar with harvesting the leaf and or the flower blossom. So the above aerial parts of the plant. And the best time to harvest those is going to be in the morning before the sun has hit those parts of the plant. And it goes without saying, You really want to be harvesting them that are free of blemishes, free of disease, that don't have any rust or discoloration. They're really in their prime. Early morning is when you want to be harvesting them. And the reason for that is because the largest percentage of essential oils and the medicinal properties is at its height in the early morning in the plants, leaves and flowers. So when you harvest them in the morning, that's when the highest concentration is there. If you wait until later in the day when the sun and the heat of the day is there, those essential oil parts start to go back into the stem and the root of the plant. And so you're not getting higher. Of course, our flavor comes from the essential oils, right? So you won't get as much flavor if it's culinary herb, but you won't get as much of the medicinal properties either when you're harvesting them for that purpose. So early morning. Now here in the Pacific Northwest, we will often get rain. So if we've had a good rain the night or the day before, I just go straight out and harvest mine in the morning and I don't rinse them. I don't wash them because if we've had a lot of rain, they've already been washed by the rain. But if it's been dry as often is in the summertime, then definitely give them a rinse. But when I harvest mine, and I'm using the leaves and the flower, I will take just a pair of scissors and cut them and leave them on the stem and or the stock. The reason for this is the least amount of handling that you do is the best because as you've noticed, if you've harvested anything like mint or lemon balm, anything in the mint family is a very strong aromatic herb. It has large amounts of essential oil in the leaf, which means you smell like it. So if you touch For example, if you touch basil, if you touch mint, if you touch lemon balm, just brushing your skin up on it, you will come away and your skin will smell like that herb. 
you don't want that to be released onto your skin. You want it to stay in the leaf and you want it to be released into whatever you're putting it in later when you're using it medicinal wise. So I do not strip the leaves or the blossoms from the stem when I harvest them because I don't want to be bruising or handling that as little as possible. I also find it's easier and faster if I do that later. So when I dry mine, I dry them when they're on the stem or on the stalk and I don't take off each individual leaf or blossom. Now, when it comes to drying your herbs, temperature is really important, especially if you plan on using them medicinal. You do not want to overheat them. If you have a dehydrator, you want to make sure that the dehydrator allows you to get the temperature down to the lowest setting, ideally 95 degrees Fahrenheit. If you are using an oven, you can use an oven to dehydrate your fruit and your vegetables, but I don't recommend using an oven for your herbs. Most ovens won't go down that low, and even with the door open, propped open on the oven and on its lowest temperature setting, it's likely that the temperature is going to be warmer than 95 degrees Fahrenheit. It's very hard to control. So dehydrator that will let you put a setting at 95 degrees Fahrenheit or lower is ideal, and especially if you live in a high humid climate. If you live in an area that has a lot of humidity, it can be hard, especially for flower blossoms or some of those thicker leaves to dry them without getting any mold on them so that they will dry fast enough. So that's when your dehydrator is really going to be an essential part of this process. But there was the use of herbs and drying those herbs for many a century before we had our modern dehydrators. So let's talk about that method. And we are actually growing and dehydrating so many herbs now that I don't, I only have one dehydrator and only have so many trays. And so I will use my dehydrator, but I also use these other methods more. The very oldest fashion that's been used for centuries to dehydrate your herbs, of course, is just air drying. This is where it's important that you leave them on the stalk and or the stem and you gather them together and you want to make sure that you're hanging them upside down. The reason we want to hang them upside down is because when they are upside down, those essential oils are going, gravity is our friend and at work there, and pulls them into the leaves and the flower blossom away from the stem. This is ideal. Now, if you are a step-by-step -step visual person, I do have a YouTube video that shows doing this, but I'll still walk you through it verbally. I like to take a bundle, but not too thick of a bundle, because remember, we do need airflow. And so if you have too many stacks or too large of a bouquet, essentially, even though we're hanging it upside down together, then it can be hard for the air to circulate all the way through and you could have mold potential. When you're tying the stocks together, you are stems, you want to make sure that you're tying them tightly because as the moisture content is removed, as they're dehydrating, they will shrink up. And so if you don't have them tied tightly, you'll get some of those stems and stalks that will fall out. So we want to tie them tight and then hang them upside down and allow them to dry. Now I will do mine in the house like this. I've got some hooks by our wood stove, even though the wood stove is not running this time of year. We're not burning our wood heat. It's still in the summertime, but it's a great area where I've got hooks already at and I can hang them. They're not in direct sunlight. It's not in a direct window and there's lots of good airflow there. But I only have so much room in order to do that. And I've got a lot more herbs than I've got space to hang on my hooks. 
So the other method works very well and allows you to do them outside without getting dust and flies on them. I have to say living on a farm and a homestead that has livestock, there's always flies. There's always flies. In fact, I can tell immediately if someone was never raised around livestock because when I was growing up and with my kids, you do not leave a door open unless there is a screen door on it because you will be invaded with flies. And so I can always tell when someone was not raised in the country comes to my house. And even though my doors are closed because I don't have screens, we only have screens on our sliding glass door. The other entry doors don't have screen doors on them. And my door will be shut and they will open the door and come in and they leave it open behind them. And it kind of makes me want to pull my hair out. I have to go behind them or be like, can you please shut the door? You'll literally watch the flies come in. And we have, you know, there's only so much you can do when you've got pasture behind you in the summer months. You're going to have flies. And I don't want those flies on my herbs. So I keep the flies out of my house as best as possible. And I don't mind hanging them that way. But in order to hang them outside where I've got more space, I'm not going to just hang them upside down because I know there's, you know, certain plants will help repel certain insects and people will say, oh, peppermint, you know, will keep I. I'm just here to tell you that I have seen flies land on my peppermint. I have seen flies land on my sage. They may not hang out there very long, but I've pretty much seen a fly land on almost every herb that we have at one point or another outside. So I'm not going to just go off of that assumption and be like, oh, the flies won't land on this. They will. But a paper bag is an excellent way to dry your herbs outside, especially for those smaller blossom things like chamomile where you have a lot of them. So just a plain old regular brown paper bag, put your herbs in there. And then I just use, fold it over once and I use a clothespin and I will clip it to some wire where I have our onions and garlic drying outside. So we have a covered back Southern exposure porch. You don't want it to be in direct sunlight, even though the bag will keep it from direct sunlight, right? I still like to have mine where it's not in direct sunlight, but where it gets warm and there's plenty of airflow. So our back porch is ideal for this and the brown paper bag still allows air to go through, but it keeps off the dust and it keeps the bugs off, which is perfect. And it allows me to do quite a bit at one time and I can do multiple bags. Now in the past, I have tried pillowcases. I had reds in several different places that you could use pillowcases to dry your herbs, but mine molded in pillowcases. I did stinging nettle leaves in there and in the center, a bunch of them got moldy and so I had to throw them out. I much prefer using the brown paper bag. I've never had mold issues. Now you will still wanna check, check for mold issues, check when they're dry and then ready to be brought into the house. So I like to check mine every few days, just allows me to monitor them and keep an eye on them. But once they are fully dehydrated via whichever of those three methods, then it's time to get them packaged and in containers and up on the shelf in my medicine cabinet for when I need them later. And this is where a lot of people make a really big mistake. So oftentimes we see when we are buying tea bags in the store or loose tea, it's already cut up into small and sifted pieces of the leaves and or stem, root, bark, etc., whatever it is we might be buying. And of course, when it's in a tea bag, those tea leaves and other things in there, they're chopped up and really fine. That is not ideal for medicinal properties. We don't want to do that. So 
After I have gotten mine dry, and as I said, I leave them on the stem and or the stalk, then I bring them in and I find it easier to remove each individual leaf if it's larger leaves like mint and lemon balm and or the blossom off of the stem if it's flowers once it's dried. You still don't want to break it up. You don't want to crinkle it up. You don't want them chopped up. You want to keep them in as whole form as possible for storage. The reason for this is because as you are crinkling it up, if you're crinkling it up or breaking it, you are releasing some of those essential oils, which is why we were trying not to touch them in the first place. We don't want to release them prematurely to us actually using them. The second reason is you've got a larger surface area if you have a whole leaf or a whole flower blossom. Once you cut that up, you've increased the surface area where the oxygen gets in. You've also released those essential oils and it begins to break down much faster. And we don't want either of those things to happen until we're ready to use it. So whole leaf form, whole blossom form into your jar. I store mine in glass jars. So I have different wet jars or phyto jars and even mason jars. You can vacuum seal them up if you wish. I usually don't. I will if it's a really large thing, but usually the smaller ones of leaves, I don't vacuum seal mine. I know we'll be using it over the next six to nine months. Totally personal preference. And once you open that vacuum seal to use it, if I'm something that I'm making and using on a frequent basis, then you have to keep sealing it up. So I find it's better if you just do it in smaller jars. Totally up to you. And then you can vacuum seal the smaller ones up. And then every time you're opening it, you're not having to reseal it. But it's key that you leave it in that whole form and you don't creakle it and crunch it up or chop it up or whatever until the time of use. Now, we've been talking mainly about the leafy and the blossom part, but there's quite a few of your herbs that you actually harvest the root of the plant. And I know many of us are racing against that first frost that comes in the fall because that's when a lot of our things get killed off. And if they're not harvested and brought in before that hard frost, that hard frost, then they're completely lost. But you do have some plants where like echinacea, for example, you actually can harvest the leaf. You can use all parts of the echinacea plant medicinally. So you can use the above parts, the leafy aerial parts and the flower blossom parts as fresh juice. You could tincture them as well. But most herbalists will agree that it's actually the root of the echinacea that has the highest medicinal qualities. But you don't harvest the root. One, your echinacea plant needs to be at least three years of age for the root to be large enough to harvest part of it. And so then you have this continual renewed source. So that's great because you, as it's a new plant, you can just use some of the leaf and the flowers and harvest that part. But once it's of age, you don't harvest the root until it's went through that first frost. And the reason for that is very similar to what we were talking about earlier with the leafy parts is when the plant is flowering and growing, so spring and summertime, it's putting its energy, whatever food that root is drawing up from the ground, it's putting its energy into producing those leafy and flower parts. But once the killing frost has come through, then it begins to divert all of the energy from the above ground part, the leaf and the flowers, back into the root to sustain it throughout the winter months and to then begin the renewal process of blossoming and growing the next year. So you want to harvest the root after it's went through that frost because that's when it's going to have the strongest amount of medicinal properties in it. And this is also really nice because a lot of us are busy running around trying to get everything else harvested. 
in trying to beat the frost, but there are a few plants that you'll wait until after the frost. So echinacea is a prime example of that, as well as dandelion root. Of course, you want to do it in between the window where it has frosted, but it's not frozen the ground so hard that you can't dig and get it out. Now, for us, that rarely happens. Our ground is frozen that hard, not until much, much, much later in winter. The more northern climate you are, then, of course, you will have more of a risk of your ground getting frozen faster and not being able to get that root out. But usually, even if you'll have a first frost and the ground's not going to be frozen solid, you can still harvest those roots for at least several weeks. But same thing on the root harvest. You want to try to not bruise it, handle it as little as possible. And then same principles for dehydrating. You don't want to really cook it per se. Now, some people will roast their dandelion root and use roasted dandelion as a in a tea as a coffee replacement. Some people will do that. But for most of your roots, you do want to make sure that they are fully dried, but you don't want to be cooking them. Now, it is faster and easier to dehydrate anything, right? When it's in a smaller form, the smaller it is, the faster it's going to dehydrate. But again, keeping that surface matter larger. So it's better if you can dry the root in larger chunks and then cut it up or if you're going to do it in a powdered form for something, do that right at the time of use. And if you haven't left a review of the podcast, please do so and then shoot me a screenshot of that either via email or on Instagram or Facebook Messenger of your review. So be on Apple Podcasts if that's what you're listening to, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever app you happen to be listening to your podcast on. And you will get entered. So this is during the month of September you will be entered in to win a copy of one of my books. Now, if you already happen to have all three of my current books, The Made From Scratch Life, Handmade, and The Family Garden Plan, then you will be entered to win my brand new book that is releasing November 3rd, which is The Family Garden Planner. So it's actually a paper planner that helps you to organize your food growing year, has worksheets, weekly tasks, expert advice in there. And so you will be entered in to win a copy of that, but you need to leave a review and then you do have to screenshot it and share it with me because when someone leaves a review, I have no way of knowing what their real name is unless they put it. And of course, I don't have access to contact info, but if you message me with your screenshot, then if you are the winner, I can easily just shoot you a message back to get your address to send you a copy of whichever book it is that you choose. So make sure that you do that and enter the giveaway. And don't miss your chance to join that free live herbal class. Make sure you do have to register. So you'll go to melissacanoris.com forward slash herb class and you'll see an orange button that says, yes, save my seat. You will click on that and then enter your first name and email, hit save my spot, and then you will get a link for the live class for that Thursday. I can't wait to see you there and help you learn the secrets to effective herb use. And you've already gotten the first steps on making sure that you are harvesting, drying, and storing them properly for maximum medicinal benefits by listening to today's episode. So next week's episode, we are going to be talking about ways to boost your immune system. I can't wait to dive into that with you. For now, blessings in mason jars. Mm -hmm.